Hey, I'm Zach. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. I hope that it encourages you. I hope it challenges you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's Word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore, whether that's coming to one of our Sunday gatherings or coming to one of our Restore groups. Either way, we would love to see you. You can get more information about that on our website at RestoreAustin.org. And I hope you enjoyed this week's video. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to continue in worship, um, a time of giving. Uh, so you're going to see some people come down and some baskets go by. Um, we say this a lot, but I always want to say it for especially people who are here for the first time. Um, this is not something that you're required to do. It's not like a cover charge because you came in here today. This is something that um, we do as, uh, as part of this church family here. We give to the mission that God is on in and through our church. Um, we also like to be really upfront about uh, money. We realize that a lot of times people can have church hurt because of a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons can be that you're not really sure where money goes. Um, so I can tell you that one of the places it goes is that we rent this facility every week, and um, we're really proud of that um, because every dime that we have goes back into the school system um, to help educate kids here in Austin. Another place that money goes is, like you heard from Violet a second ago, um, Grateful Thread, a partnerships like that, working with nonprofits all over the city of Austin is, is something that we use um, finances that are given to our church to, to support. We mobilize both people and finances to help uh, do good things all over the city of Austin. So, um, yeah, we're about to start this series this morning. I am, I'm super, super excited to start this series with you. Uh, over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about really who we really are as a church. And we're calling it Family Values because our church here is not a building, Right? And it's, it's easy to say that because we're in middle school, but it's, it's not a building, it's not the chairs, it's not um, the, the worship, it's not me, it's not the message, it's, it's people, it's you. Our church is a family, it, it's a group of people, and that's what the church has always been and will always be. It's just a family of people who come together to love each other and to love Jesus. And so that's why we're calling this family values, things that we value as a church family here at Restore. So the first four weeks will be a look at our four core values. So they are grace, authenticity, diversity, and partnerships. These four things are things that we value greatly. And so this morning, the first one, we're going to be talking about grace. And so those are the first four weeks. And then on the final week of the series, we're going to be talking about how those values shape the mission that God has us on as a church. We say all the time, we believe that God is on this great mission of restoration, of restoring the entire world to what it was supposed to be from the very beginning, and, and he is using us as a part of that. And so our unique expression of the church here at Restore Austin, what is God's mission, what is his plan for us, and where are we going from here? So that's going to be week five. But again, today is week one, and we're going to talk about grace. When our team sat down to start planning this series, um, we began to discuss how we could really make it memorable. And, and we asked ourselves, what would make this series sticky? You know, something that, that people would be able to grab hold of and take home with them and, and just make it memorable, right? 
And so if, if this is your first time or you haven't been coming for very long, you may not know, but our church is, is only 14 months old. We launched last February, so we're 14 months old as a church, and it's a relatively new church. We realize how important it is to continually be reminding ourselves of who we are, of the callings that God has placed on us. So as we play in this series, we talked around a bunch of different ideas about how to make family values easy to remember, about how to make it sticky, Right? After lots of conversation, we realized this wasn't something we could do on our own. We needed to bring in the big guns. So we called up my mentor, Pastor Christian Brimstone, and we asked him to film a few high-quality training videos on how to use our core values and how they can make us better Christians. So this is the first one. Get ready to have your life changed. Hello. You got me reading the good book. <laughs> I'm Christian Brimstone. Do you want to know how to be a Christian in the church? Are you tired of praying and reading your Bible to find the answers? <laughs> then you're in for a special treat. Today we're going to talk about family values, and they'll teach you the principles for Christian living in the church. Music and title screen. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that. Oops. <laughs> okay. Donovan. I don't need a head now. You say yes or no. We'll cut it. Yes, in today's lesson, we're going to talk about one of the most important values of Christianhood, grace. <laughs> Nothing proves that you are a Christian more than bowing your head to pray before every meal. Nothing. You need to set an example of saying grace before those who will see you in the world without being of the world. Now, obviously, grace goes deeper into the heart than just praying before meals. <laughs> I like to remember grace by an acronym. Grace. G-R-A. I got it, Jonathan. C and then the E becomes at the end. Grace. Great righteousness always convicts everyone. Is evil. 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 I'll slap you upside the head. You crack me one more time. Always convicts evil. Grace. <clears throat> it's an internal understanding of how Jesus has given you authority to tell someone they are wrong. Gracefully, of course. <laughs> I mean, come on. How else will the world know how to act without Christians telling them the difference between right and wrong? That is really the only graceful way to act in the world. I mean, nowhere in the Bible will you find hate the sin, love the sinner. <laughs> Instead, consider the words of the Bible. Titus 2, 11 through 15 says, see here, <clears throat> for the grace of God hath appeared to all men denying worldly lust and Purifying a peculiar people, rebuke with all authority. 
That's all in the Bible. I mean, need I say more? It's pretty clear. Cut and dry. <laughs> now, you are equipped to be a better Christian in the world. So, go get them, Christian soldier. Thank you, um, Pastor Brimstone, for coming in and, uh, and doing that for us. We're going to have one of those each week, so be looking forward to that. Now, when you put all of those things together in a satirical 90s-style training video, they sound pretty ridiculous, right? Like, like, grace means praying before meals, grace means telling other people they're wrong. All of those things, they're ridiculous explanations of grace, but I want you to raise your hand if you've actually heard one or more of those things seriously used to describe how Christians should treat people. Raise your hand. You heard it, one or more of those things seriously used. Yes, I think probably most of us have. I, I want to... I think if you ask any church in America if they value grace, I think 99% of them would say yes. Right? I mean, it's, it's an important thing. It's in the Bible. I think they would say we value grace. But if that's true, then why do so many churches and Christians have such a reputation of being judgmental or legalistic or just plain mean to people? Where is the breakdown happening for us as a church? I believe that grace is one of the most misapplied and misunderstood and even misused words in all of Christian culture. Then why make it one of our four core values, you might ask? Well, because it's still a foundational truth. It's, it's a doctrine that much of the Christian faith itself is built on. And in addition to that, it's a beautiful part of God's character, of who he is. The word grace simply means unmerited favor. Grace is being freely given something amazing when you did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Unmerited favor. If you go on our website, you'll see grace as the very first of our four core values listed. Underneath it, it says, because God has shown immeasurable grace to us, we will lead with grace in every relationship and circumstance at Restore. And whether you are a Christian or not, I'm sure that if we took a poll of the room this morning that every single person here would say that being gracious is generally a good thing, right? I mean, we can come around that. But again, that's easy to say. It's easy to, to copy and paste it onto a website or a Facebook page. It's a lot harder when we consider the tough questions that come along with actually enacting grace in our lives. Questions like, how can we be gracious to people who disagree with us? What does grace look like when we get taken advantage of? Is God really as gracious as people say he is? I've read some things about him that make it not seem so. What happens when people hurt someone we love? Do we still have to treat them with grace? And more to the heart of our core value of grace here at Restore, two questions. Number one, what is this immeasurable grace that God has shown us? And number two, what does it really look like to lead with grace in every relationship and circumstance? So for the next few minutes, those are the two questions that we're going to seek to answer this morning. And I think the passage that does the very best job of showing us what grace is 
and how to apply it in real life situations is in Galatians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible or your phone and you want to turn there, please, you can turn there now. If not, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there. All right, are you ready to hear the most grace-filled passage in all of Scripture? Here's the first sentence, Galatians 2.11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That sounds like Christian Brimstone's definition of grace, maybe, more than the one that we're actually talking about. But Peter comes to Antioch, and Paul gets in his face and tells him why he is wrong. But before we judge, let's look at why Paul opposed Peter. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, the circumcision group is also called the Judaizers or some Jewish religious leaders. They were very simply people who made others, Gentiles, convert to Judaism before they could become Christians. They added something to Christ, and we'll get into that more in just a second. But Peter and these others had started to put up a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was like the in-crowd versus the outsiders. It was the church people against the non-church people, the religious people against the non-religious people. And let me give you some background on how big of a rift there really was between Jews and Gentiles, okay? A Gentile is a Jewish moniker given to anyone who's not a Jew, right? So most of us in here would be Gentiles. In the first century, Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They hated each other, in fact. Jews believed that all Gentiles were so unclean that they avoided talking to them, eating with them, walking too close to them, lest they catch some Gentile, unclean, I mean, dirty disease that they had. And this is why it's so scandalous when Jesus spent time talking to and even helping Gentiles during his time on earth. But the crazy part about this is is before the incident at Antioch with Peter and Paul that we're reading about here, before that ever occurred, Jesus has actually used Peter and Paul as leaders in the unification between Jews and Gentiles. In the early days of the church, there was something called the Jerusalem Council. And it was a group of apostles and elders and teachers who came together to talk about really tough issues, hard things. They would make decisions and they would help people. And anything relating to Jesus and his church, they came together to discuss and make decisions on. In Acts 15, the council comes together to address this question about Jews and Gentiles. Verse 5 and the following records this council meeting. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They must become Jews before they can become Christians. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Incredible testimony by Peter there. Standing up in the face of opposition, he calls for this council to welcome with open arms Gentiles into the Christian faith and church. 
without discrimination, just like Jesus did. And after the council hears this, they immediately decide that Peter and Paul are right and that the church should welcome Gentiles with open arms. They believed so strongly this was the direction that God was leading them that they actually sent Paul and another guy, Barnabas, to visit churches all over the region that had large number of Gentiles to actually apologize to them for the way that they had been treating them. They wrote this big letter of apology and Paul and Barnabas went all around the region handing it out and reading it to Gentiles and just saying, I'm sorry, we should never have treated you like this. This was never God's plan. Guess where Paul and Barnabas go first? Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are there. They arrive in Antioch. They present this letter of apology to the Gentiles in the church and then spend some time ministering to the people there. And while all of this is happening, Peter starts being pressured by those same Judaizers, the, the, the circumcision party, those, those Jewish leaders who believe that Gentiles needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. He starts getting pressure back where he is. And after enough pressure is applied, Peter succumbs to fear and begins separating himself from the Gentiles, not eating with them, not speaking with them until they convert to Judaism. The very thing that he had stood up just days before and condemned, he was now a part of. Then Peter gets so consumed with this fear of disappointing these Jewish leaders and of of making these Gentiles become Jews before they can become Christians, he actually leaves and starts traveling to the same churches that they sent a letter of apology to to tell them that they had to become Jews before they became Christians again. Guess where Peter goes first? Antioch. And as Paul and Barnabas are there apologizing and mentoring and loving on this Gentile church, here comes Peter with this same message of discrimination, the same message of anything but what Christ had told them. And they meet, and that's when things start to get ugly. Verse 13, then the other Jews joined him, Peter, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So now Paul is on his own. Now all the Jews in the church in Antioch, including Barnabas, the guy that he came down to apologize with, are siding with Peter, and they're like, yeah, you're right. You guys do need to become Jews. We are better Like, it does really need to be our way before you can become Christians. But Paul, he's not having any of this, okay? He's not just going to sit back and let it happen. He stands up and takes action. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. Paul's argument here is really simple. He says, if we already know that the law doesn't save us, Why on earth would we tell the Gentiles that they have to follow it in order to be saved? That that makes no sense. I can just hear Paul saying, Peter, come on, man. You and I both know that the law doesn't work. It was never meant to work. 
The whole time from beginning to end, the law was to show us our need for a Savior. Peter, the Savior has come. You walked with him. You talked with him. You watched him do miracle after miracle and raise people from the dead. And then you watched him die and be buried and rise again. You know that life, salvation only comes through him. Why are you putting this old law on people now? Peter, I, I, I know you're under pressure. I know that you're scared. But show grace to these sisters and brothers, no matter if they're Jews or Gentiles, because, man, that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul knew that salvation came through Jesus alone. It didn't require becoming Jewish, getting circumcised, or, or following the Jewish law. The only thing it required was faith in Jesus Christ. That was it. So you might be asking yourself, why does this first century dispute between Peter and Paul matter for us in the 21st century? 2,000 years later, how is this relevant? Well, because Christians today may not be asking non-Christians to get circumcised or to start following the Jewish law before they can come to faith, but many times we might as well be. Particularly in the Western church, we are guilty of adding requirements on top of faith in Jesus. Through our words and actions, time and time again, we've told people that salvation is Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus our particular brand of church. Jesus plus abstaining from sins that we find extra sinful. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about, but... Before you do, uh, before I do, I want you to know that these examples are not hypothetical examples. I have heard all of these things that I'm about to tell you come out of the mouth of a Christian at some point in my life, and I bet you've heard a lot of them too. You have to go through confirmation to be a Christian. You have to be baptized in water to be a Christian. You have to take every verse of the Bible literally to be a Christian. You can't be gay and be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. You can't be a Christian and be a Republican. You can't be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. You can't be a Christian and vote for Hillary Clinton. You can't be a Christian and not vote. You can't be a Calvinist and be a Christian. You have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian. You can't struggle with sin continually and be a Christian. You have to go to church regularly to be a Christian. You have to pray. You have to read your Bible. You have to give money to those in need. You have to serve others. You have to go on mission trips. You have to have quiet times to be a Christian. I could go on and on and on. Forcing people to follow the customs and practices of your particular brand of faith is not grace. It is, in fact, the opposite of grace, and it's called legalism. Legalism is salvation through works. Legalism is teaching people that they have to earn God's love. Legalism is saying it's Jesus plus something else. It's wrong, it's demeaning, and it's in opposition to everything that Jesus stands for and that he has stood for for 2,000 years. And when Paul saw it happening, he did the most gracious thing possible. He opposed it head on. 
sometimes the most gracious thing we can do is to stand up to Christians who are not showing grace to other people. Claiming that anything aside from Jesus can make you a Christian means that Jesus never needed to come and to die and to rise again. Paul makes that very point as he finishes this conversation with Peter in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do you know what happens when we lead with legalism instead of grace? We proclaim to the world that Christ died for nothing. Don't miss this. If we can earn our salvation, we don't need Jesus. That's simple and it's the truth. If we can do it, if we can earn it, we don't need him anymore. Every time we add a requirement besides faith in Christ to the gospel, we slander the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by saying it wasn't enough, that we need something else, that it's Jesus plus something. Paul pleads with Peter and the other Jewish leaders, do not set aside the grace of God. God's gracious love is the only reason that we have the chance to experience this new life in Christ. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church later, Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Did you notice he didn't say by grace and works. He didn't say by grace and church attendance. He didn't say by grace and not sinning anymore. He didn't say by grace and Bible reading. He said by grace you have been saved. In our family value statement, when we say we have been shown immeasurable grace by God, this is what we're talking about. So, how do we live grace-filled lives? Or to put it in the language of our family value, how do we lead with grace in every relationship and circumstance, both in our lives and as a church? Well, we don't. It's crescendo. Every time I make a point, I want you to drop that, okay? We don't. Okay, we are unable to do that. Jesus does it. Thank you. How do we lead with grace in every relationship and circumstance? We don't. Jesus does. He just uses us to do it. Now, you may have missed it because we kind of rolled through it pretty quickly, but that's exactly what Paul just said in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are a Christian, your graceless self, your old self was, was crucified with Christ. It was put away. 
it no longer lives, but now Christ, who is grace personified, lives in you. Paul says, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. And if you'll let him, Jesus will lavish his radical and scandalous grace on every relationship and circumstance in your life. If you'll allow him to work through you, if you'll surrender to the Holy Spirit moving in and through you, you'll, you'll experience Jesus' grace pour out into every relationship and circumstance in your life. It's God's grace working in us and God's grace working through us. So what does this mean for Restore? for our church family here. Like I said at the beginning, Restore is in a building. It's not chairs, it's not a sermon, it's not a worship set, it's people, it's us, it's a family. A big, messy, dysfunctional, loving family. What does this mean for our church family? What does it look like for our church family to lead with grace? And I think it means three things. Number one, we surrender to the work of Jesus in and through us. We realize that in our own flesh, in our own power, we can't manufacture enough grace. And it won't even be real anyway because it'll be from us and our messed up selves. It's not from Jesus working through us. So the first thing we have to do is realize that it's his power through us and surrender to that power. That's number one. Number two, we pursue unity in the essentials and liberty in everything else. Now, I didn't make that one up. That's actually a church father by the name of Augustine who famously said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. You'll notice if you go on our website that there's a doctrinal statement in our About Us page. There are seven things on that doctrinal statement. I'm going to tell, them, tell you what they are. It's God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Trinity. It's humanity, it's the fact that we can't save ourselves, that we're broken, that we need a savior. It's the Bible, we believe the Bible is the word of God and we use it to teach and to look at things and to live our lives by. And the last one is the return of Jesus. We don't know how or when, but he's coming back to finish this mission of restoration that he is on. Seven things that we'll die for. Seven things that we are all about. Seven things that we're not going to compromise on. Seven things that we want unity on. doesn't mean if you don't agree with those seven things, you can't come or anything like that. But it means that with those seven things, those are the traits of what we believe as a church family. But aside from those seven things, we're going to pursue liberty and grace with what we call secondary issues. Non-essential gospel issues. And we're going to create a place where people who disagree about secondary things can come, put aside those secondary things, and be all about Jesus. That's who we are as a church family. Number three, we stand up and speak out when we see Christians not leading with grace. We aren't ever going to be afraid to call things out because that's what Jesus did. Did you know um, Jesus encountered some vile things during his time here on earth, right? He went through some, some tough stuff. He saw some radical, rough, dark, sinful things. 
he encountered people who were, were far from God all of the time. And yet, we never see him get angry with one person who was far from God, not one person. Why? Because he got angry with his disciples and the religious leaders. Because they claimed to have experienced the grace of God and yet they weren't showing it to the people around him. That's what really upset Jesus. It didn't upset him that broken people were broken, that hurt people were hurt, that sinful people sinned. He knew that they were far from God and he did everything he could to show them the grace that he came to the world to bestow on us. But the people who claimed to have experienced the grace of God and yet didn't show it to anyone else, that's what really made him mad. And that's who he went after. That's why he flipped tables over in the temple when he saw Pharisees and religious leaders extorting people who needed God's grace, using it for their personal gain. Instead of allowing the grace of God to flow through them to the people who needed it most, they stood in judgment. They placed legalistic requirements on people and watched as they suffered. And while they did that, you know what Jesus was doing? He was eating dinner at a thief's house. He was healing idol worshipers. He was sharing water with prostitutes and dying on a cross next to criminals. That's what he was about. And that's what we're about. With Good Friday and Easter happening so recently, I've been kind of thinking about the cross a lot lately and just, just what it was like and what that time was like and how horrific it was and the sacrifice that Jesus made about the, the kind of love that could drive someone to lay their life down for others. And then a few days ago, I witnessed one of the most beautiful examples of grace that I've ever seen. Many of you heard or saw about the murder of 74-year-old Robert Godwin Sr. last week. He was walking home in Cleveland from a store on Easter Sunday when Steve Stevens randomly murdered him and broadcast it live on Facebook. On Tuesday, Robert Godwin's children were on CNN and they were asked just about what they were going through and how they are coping with all of this. I want to show you the video of what they said. Naja, what do you want people to know about how, what your family's dealing with and how you're going to get through this? Naja? Um, I think they could just imagine somebody missing in their family and they feel it. Somebody very special to you, somebody very dear and close to you just gone and it's broadcast. Um, that's how it feels. Yeah. You feel, for no reason, you feel really angry. Yeah. Like Tammy, my dad wasn't bothering anybody. Tammy, what do you yes. want people to know who are watching about your family and your, your dad? I just want people to know that he was a good man. Yes. And he was a, a good father and he was a family man. And he was a good grandfather. You would do anything for anybody. You took something from us. Mm. Just turn yourself in. We're not a hateful family. We love people. We love everybody. We 
we got good hearts in our family who was raised right. Mm. Our father taught us to love, our mother taught us to love. Give us some closure, just turn yourself in. We don't hate you. You took something from us and we still don't hate you. Dorothy, I'll give you the last word here. All right, since I got the last words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who shall ever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I don't want nothing. I don't want him to take his life. I don't want the police to take his life. I want him to give himself up. Please. Because at the end of the day, Jesus died for his sins too. Yes. Just like he died for mine. And all this on Easter weekend. Thank you, family. You're a beautiful family and you're strong. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I don't want him to take his life. I don't want the police to take his life. I just want him to give himself up because at the end of the day, Jesus died for his sins too, just like he died for mine. That's that guy's wife. That is what grace looks like when it is Jesus working through you. You think that we can manufacture something like that in our flesh? You think that power comes from us? If that happened to me, I'd want to murder the guy back. When Jesus, the grace that, the grace that hung on the cross, the grace that endured unimaginable pain and then prayed for the forgiveness of the people inflicting it on him. That's the kind of grace that Jesus showed and that's the kind of grace that he is still showing today when you let him work through you. That's what it looks like. If Jesus can work gracefully through the family of this murder victim to forgive the murderer, he can work gracefully through you in whatever relationship you find yourself in, whatever situation you're walking through, whatever circumstance you're dealing with. He can do that kind of grace through you if you'll just let him. And as a church, we are absolutely committed to this. This is our family value. This is who we are. We are a church that is about grace. And as a church family, the grace of Jesus working through us looks out at the world around us and says, I don't care who you are or what you've done, you deserve the chance to experience the grace and hope and love of Jesus. And we would love for you to do it here with us. That's who we are, and that's what we're about. Let me pray. God, thank you for the radical grace that you show us. Thank you for the way that you continue to work through us to show that radical grace to the world around us. God, thank you that we don't have to manufacture it ourselves. We don't have to come up with the power on our own, God, but that by you working through us, we get to be a part of seeing your grace permeate the 
dark brokenness of our world. Fill it with light and with love and with hope. I pray that our church, that our family here at Restore would always be about this kind of grace. That that would be a defining mark that when people hear the name Restore Austin, they think, oh yeah, that's that church that just loves people. That shows sacrificial grace to people, no matter who they are or what they've done. God, let that be said about us and not because of anything that we've done, but because simply we are surrendered to your work through us. God, thank you for this family. Thank you for my family. I pray that you would write this value, this gospel of grace, deep in our hearts. It would flow through us in every relationship and circumstance that we walk through. In Jesus' name we pray.